Welcome to class this morning. Welcome to class. We move ahead um, in the creed this week um, with the phrase, was crucified, died, and was buried. And actually, I've got that kind of as our main one. We're thinking about death this week, but really um, the beginning of the phrase is suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Pontius Pilate is a character that shows up in the New Testament who acts like a judge figure and condemns Jesus to death in a way. Um, The question about who actually condemns Jesus to death in the New Testament is a little complicated, even in the New Testament itself. It's kind of like multiple parties and there are multiple um, kinds of things going on. Um, So let's recite the creed. Okay, so I get the creed straight in my mind here. Let's get ready to, to recite it. Okay, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was, cru- um, was crucified, died, and was buried. Is that cool? Can we try to do that? All right, let's try to recite it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Who... who <laughs> I'm sorry, I just, I just messed it up. I just lost my breath there. What's the next phrase? Holy Spirit, Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Excellent work. I should just have you recite it. Why should I recite it? Okay. We want to memorize the creed so far as we are, and by the end of our course, we'll have the whole creed memorized, and we'll have a basic outline of what Christians believe in outline, illuminated by and driven by the biblical storyline that we're marching through in this class. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. And then our next phrase for next week, he descended to the dead. These are very heavy phrases. And this week I want us to talk about this heaviness, this darkness that scripture and the creed offers us in terms of this theme of death. So we're going to tackle this in a number of ways, and we're at a perfect point in our biblical narrative to really get into this in a serious way. Israel is in trouble at this point in our narrative. They seem to be doing great at points, they seem to be struggling at points, but now it's really going to come to a head, and next week we're going to see the demise, essentially the death of Israel. So this is all leading toward the death of Israel. In terms of a timeline, let's review where we are and where are these materials that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at some materials that are sometimes grouped in a set of of books in the Bible that in the Jewish tradition at least are called the writings, the writings. They don't really clearly belong in any one category like the Torah was that story of Israel from creation all the way through um, the Exodus and getting the law. And then you had kind of like Israel's historical epic in Joshua and Judges and through the Samuels and through getting a king and now through Kings and we'll finish reading parts of Kings um, and and finish that story essentially which is kind of like the core backbone story of the Old Testament for next week. Um, these books, though, don't really tell any story necessarily, but rather they engage with parts of Israel's story all over the place. In fact, in some cases for these books for this, this week that we're looking at, namely the Psalms, Lamentations, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, um, we don't even really know when these books were written at all. We can make guesses, and all of these books have traditional authors, For example, Solomon is the traditional author of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Scholars have kind of told a different story about the authorship of these books. It's a little beyond, I think, what we can accomplish in this class to fully talk about it, but our readings will offer you at least some thoughts on why people 
kind of get involved with this question of authorship as they do. So we can think of them in terms of their traditional authorship, that's totally fine. Or we can also think of these books as engaging in many different periods of Israel's history. So we'll come back to these in a minute. Um, in terms of this timeline, I mean, here's a set of five dates that I think are helpful to just know for any Bible reader, a kind of outline or spine or, or, or string on which to hang other kinds of knowledge that you have. Around the year 1200 BC, that little C with a dot means circa, that means approximately. These dates are not exact dates, they're just kind of a heuristic guide, a way to memorize. Around 1200 BC, maybe that's when we could think of the Exodus happening and Israel entering the land. People dispute this date, dispute the historicity, dispute all kinds of things. If you could know one thing about really academic biblical studies, which I haven't talked too much about in these lectures, but like academic biblical studies disputes everything. <laughs> everything at all times is under dispute in the field of academic biblical studies. That's just the way that it is. It's an exciting field. It's frustrating for some people, but that's the way it is. So 1200 BC, let's just say. Maybe David becomes king around 1000. Just use that as a symbolic date to think of like David. That's when David becomes king, 1000. When the year 2000 came, Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem in the modern state of Israel celebrated 3,000 years of history. So, you know, you could think of it as a round number. Solomon then becomes king. The kingdom splits when Solomon dies. Let's just say 920 as a date for that when Solomon dies. And the kingdom splits into a kind of civil war, not always active war, but sometimes just, you know, a, a, a kind of tension. Let's say the year 920 for that. And then the northern kingdom, Israel, in the northern part of the country, kind of has its own thing going on. They have their own set of kings, not Davidic kings, kings who are just strong enough to kind of take the kingship, let's say. And in the south, we have Judah around Jerusalem. Those are the Davidic kings. The narrative of the Hebrew Bible through this, histor through this historical core in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings really is written from and, and encodes a, a perspective from Jerusalem, from the southern part of the country. So you can imagine just from a sheer political level, even if you didn't want to bring religion or spirituality into it, they're not going to be happy with the northern part of the country, right? They see them as rebels who have broken away. Is this a case where the winner kind of tells the story? Well, not really, because as it turns out, both the nations kind of lose historically and politically in serious ways. Um, there are winners in a sense spiritually on the Bible's terms though. And there are winners in terms of who wrote the text and who preserved the text, okay? So we do have that. In the year 720, though, this Israel, what the Bible calls then Israel, or the northern kingdom, is destroyed by the Assyrians. Gone. Never to be seen again. This is where you get, like, legends of the lost ten tribes of Israel, the ten tribes in the north. When the Assyrians came, what happened? They're destroyed. Okay, scattered. And then, our last date here in the march, through the dates, the date we're kind of slowly edging toward, the date I've been giving spoiler, spoiler alerts about for weeks now, but which will come to a full, full closure next week, 586 BC. This is when the Babylonians, another empire, supplant the Assyrians. They basically go on a war path throughout the Near Eastern world and destroy many, many cities and people groups in the broader Levant or the broader area where Israel is, including Jerusalem, they kill, his, they kill Judah's last king, the last Davidic monarch that's there on the throne. They kill his sons and they burn the temple to the ground. Yes, the temple, the temple that Solomon had built, the temple that God had wanted them to build, the temple where God was worshiped, where everything was working, everything was fine. We had the Davidic kings, everything was fine, right? No, we had the prophets kind of come in, remember them, during the 700s, really earlier too, but 700s and the 600s, people like Isaiah and Amos and Micah, and Hosea, and 
Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They came in to say, no, actually, it's not fine. Everything's not okay. Not okay if you keep treating vulnerable people in your society like you do. Not okay if you keep worshiping other gods like you do. Not okay if you keep breaking your end of the covenant like you do. Granted, there's tension here too, though, because on the one hand, there's breaking of the covenant, you know? There's, there are things that go wrong in life that are like my fault, that I do, and I can't blame anyone else for those things. I'm sure if we all had a little group time, a little, little group therapy sharing time, each of us could probably think of like things in our own lives that have gone wrong that were our own fault. You couldn't blame anybody else. You couldn't just say, why is the universe so unjust? You know, I robbed a liquor store and I had to go to jail for three years. I just don't understand. Like, what even happened? Here I am in jail. Like, no, there was a thing and there was a consequence for the thing and it's pretty much tied one to one, you know. There are some areas in life, of course, where we could debate whether or not the punishments we receive are actually fair, you know. Um, I've, seen, I've seen some memes and some jokes and some serious discussion online recently, for example, about this question of drug addiction or alcoholism. Is it, is it, is it the, the kind of, the kind of um, you know, physical ailments and problems that are created from alcoholism and drug abuse, is that something where the, the abuser or the user should blame themselves for making bad decisions, or is it a disease or a kind of social problem? And people have gone back and forth about this and talked about it in different ways, and maybe the truth is, is that it's an uncomfortable blend of a person's choice and also some kind of genetic thing or some kind of social problem. Like, I don't know, I can't solve that. But that's a little more confusing. But a lot of things in life aren't that confusing. And then there are things, and then there are things that just come out of nowhere that seem to be nobody's fault at all. Um, the one thing that always kind of comes to my mind as an example broadly is the suffering of children. You can always kind of blame somebody for something, but when a child has a disease like leukemia or something like that, one years old, two years old, three years old, it's hard to kind of find a choice the child had made or a choice the parents had made or a choice anybody remotely had made. Yes, I know in the Christian biblical tradition we could be like, yeah, but Adam and Eve, you know, stuff like that gets to be a little too distant, you know, to start to blame, you know, Adam and Eve for like a three-year-old having leukemia. Maybe that is spiritually satisfying in some cases. Maybe you'd have to be a parent in that situation to see if you could just be like, well, wish Adam and Eve hadn't done that. Oh, well, you know, I doubt that that's most people's perspective right? Feels like unearned suffering. And, and, and the specific case that I always, I, I remember very vividly is when I first moved here to this, to this city, to Newburgh in 2011, there was a child where I lived who was hit by a car right across the street from us. I think the child was three years old, two years old, and died. And as far as you could tell, it was just nobody's fault. It wasn't the driver's fault. The driver wasn't speeding or drunk or anything like that. The child was not old enough to have a kind of, you know, consciousness about roads and cars and how that should happen. And it was just a thing that kind of came off the grid, so to speak, in life. Who do you blame for something like that? You just kind of throw up your hands, okay? Where on this spectrum of deserved punishment and undeserved punishment and all this kind of stuff, where on the spectrum does Israel's disaster, its death, as the creed puts it, its burial, its suffering, where does it fall? Where on that spectrum? Is it deserved fully? Is it something that kind of came out of nowhere? These books all in different ways, Psalms, Lamentations, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes take us into the heart of this problem and have different kinds of responses about suffering. Israel takes a descent during this period of disorientation in their history, we might say, into what we might call just disorientation, 
into suffering and into lament. This idea of disorientation is really important for faith. I've got to tell you this just straight on. For faith, sadness and lament and confusion is a very, very important. It's very crucial and the Bible has a lot to say about it. And the life of theology and faith has a lot to say about confusion and doubt and sadness, fear and anger. Let us as people of faith Never, never, never think that our tradition is without resources for these times. And not just resources like, oh, oh, here's like a quick fix for your problems. Oh, you feel sad? Read Psalm 14. You'll feel happy. Not like that. Like resources where the community of faith in the past had actually engaged in these same emotions to such levels and just like flailed out in many directions. Yes, sometimes with advice about how to feel better, but sometimes just with screams of pain. Sometimes with hatred. Sometimes with anger. When we think about core emotions that we experience as people, um, psychologists you know, are still doing research on what exactly counts as an emotion, a human emotion. You know, is disgust an emotion? Is it this, is it that? Do some cultures experience emotions that Western American type cultures don't experience, maybe? But basically emotions like joy and fear and sadness and anger are considered by most, I think, core emotions. And it's fascinating to think about those core emotions. I mean, if we're made in the image of God, those emotions must mean something about who we are, about how we can react to life. Like sometimes we feel angry and it's like, it is right to feel angry. You ever feel angry and it feels like so good to be mad? Because there's something justifiable there or sadness. I presume that those are just part of our psychological basic makeup. Although here's a question for you. In faith settings, in church, in small groups, in Bible studies, which of these emotions are like sanctioned emotions, appropriate emotions, and which are not? I've talked to students about this in kind of small groups and back and forth scenarios in many classes over almost a decade of teaching here. And one thing I hear repeatedly from a lot of people, and, and to be honest, it's been mostly my experience as well, is that joy has been a sanctioned emotion. Joy is the emotion of the community of faith. But fear? Nah, not so much. Sadness? Funerals? You know, as we approach, as we're in this Lenten season for Christians, approaching Good Friday, maybe we could have like one quick moment of sadness thinking about crucifixion, but quickly swallowed up by the joy of resurrection. And that's as it should be for Christians in a sense. We, you know, we believe as Christians that Jesus doesn't just suffer under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried and descended to the dead, but also that on the third day he rose again. We're getting to that in the creed too. Just notice how much language in the creed, though, is, is just bound up with talking about suffering. Just these long phrases. I could barely even remember them as we were reciting it. Okay, long phrases, anger, sadness, fear. What role does that play in the life of faith? Many Christians have found that their faith works in something like a cycle. And you might describe the cycle like this. Orientation, disorientation, new orientation. I will even write it on the board here for something to do. Orientation, disorientation, new orientation. There are many other terms you can use for these three cycles or this, this cycle with these three movements. Orientation, what's that? That's like being a little kid, you know? It's a certain kind of blissful immaturity. Think of immaturity like being a freshman and coming to college, you know? It's like, yay, college. I'm so sick of high school. This is going to be great. I'm going to find my people. I got a new wardrobe. Everything's going to be perfect. Oh, I got my new roommate. My new roommate's so cool. I love school. School's cool. It's warm out. Yay, my classes are so fun. 
my teacher's so cool, you know, like that, that attitude. Maybe that wasn't your attitude as a, fre- as, you know, as, a, as a first semester freshman, but just like those kind of feelings, like everything's great. Or you could maybe put it into like childhood terms, like when you think of your parents, like mom is so cool, my dad's a hero. My parents have such a great marriage. I want to be like them when I grow up. Yay, you know? And you learn, you know, the, kind of like the stories of faith in Sunday school, edited stories of faith, right? About the heroes of Israel and David. He's so cool, he's so great. And Esther, the queen, and everybody does the right things. And, you know, you kind of, I mean, my daughters are in this fa- phase of life. My daughters are nine years old and five years old. It's just like a world of pure orientation for them. Like everything is like, what is the next fun thing that's going to happen? you know? And if they're sad, it's just because like they've been deprived of the next fun thing for like a few seconds before, you know, we get to it. Orientation. That, as you know, I think, now in your life already, cannot last those feelings, that, 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 that way of engaging with the world. It gives way to a break, to a crack, to a shattering that we might call disorientation. My roommate's not so cool anymore. <laughs> We were just sharing clothes. Now we're stealing clothes. Now my roommate got kicked out of school. What's happening? I hate this. I don't have any money. What am I doing? You know, school's not fun anymore. Now there are exams. Now it's the springtime. Now my classes are not fun. When you're a little kid and and you kind of make this movement, when does it occur? Maybe sometime in your teenage years. Maybe you overhear that, that conversation with your parents, you know, that your parents are having where you realize maybe they're not the heroes that you thought they were. Parents get divorced, things break apart, the world gets shattered. Faith undergoes this cycle as well. Faith is not so uncomplicated as it might be when you're five or eight. This is why I've ranted and raved in past class periods about this idea that you just can't be a five-year-old forever as a person of faith. Like, that doesn't work. That cannot be lived as an adult. Yes, as Jesus said, we can have the attitude and disposition of children as an approach to faith in a certain way, but Jesus also said to be wise as serpents. How can you be five years old and wise as a serpent at the same time? This is just not, you know, it doesn't work. There's a kind of maturity that we then have when we deal with things, yes, like the death of children. Yes, like serious financial problems. Yes, like divorce, like serious relational issues. And it's, this is a journey in the, in the life of faith. Disorientation is not unfaith, or at least it doesn't have to be experienced that way but it's rather a shattering and a reorganizing of what it means to be a person of faith. Maybe even just like reading the Bible anew or some materials or taking a class, maybe like this one or a different one, provides a certain kind of disorientation because it's like, wait, I thought I had this all organized and now the deck just got shuffled on me. What the heck is happening? Israel undergoes this. You might, I mean, if you wanted to put Israel's story into these terms, you could think like orientation is like the Garden of Eden. Yay, we're naked, everything's good. Disorientation. There's a shattering. There's a break. Adam and Eve disobey. God still protects them, but now the world is alienating. New orientation, though. What happens after this? God gives them clothes and a new way forward in this broken world. And this is ultimately what we need after disorientation, isn't it? A new way forward. There's no going back. You can't go back and be 16 years old again. You can't go back to, you know, July of 2018 you know, when you had all that promise before you came to college and nothing, everything was perfect and everything was going to be great. You can't be that person again now. It's too late, you know. You've already gone through what you've gone through. You've been who you've been. How to move forward, though? New orientation. Anger and fear and sadness are still experienced, but with a new perspective and put into perspective. 
the perspective that life continues to go on. In the life of Israel, you might say, you know, the founding of, of the country in the Exodus and, you know, they come into the land and then David becomes the king. That's orientation. Yay, we have a king. God promised us X and Y and Z. Oh no, in the year 920 and 720, we have these moments of disorientation culminating in the deepest act of disorientation in this story, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 586. What just happened? I thought God was protecting us. Is there life after death though? Is there something after this? And how do you deal with it when you're in the depth of this, of disorientation? What are the tools and the resources that faith has for that deepest darkness? Psalms, Lamentations, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. I'll offer these five books to you here in our time that remains. Just by way of saying, I think Israel dealt with this kind of thing. And Israel has multiple ways to talk about Israel's experience in times of suffering. Let's take the Psalms for starters, okay? The Psalms. The word psalm is a translation, a Greek, a Greek word, psalmos, that's translating the Hebrew word mizmor, which means something that is sung. To zamar, something in Hebrew is to sing. So the Psalms are songs. Sometimes people refer to Psalms as the hymn book or the song book of ancient Israel, a collection of prayers and songs from, by the Psalms' own words, many different periods. Many are associated with David, but many are associated with other people too. And I want to point out, I'm going to have you read some Psalms for this week that are not Psalms of lament, of crying out in disorientation. Some of them are Psalms where you have you know, praises, just exaltation of joy. But I want to point out by way of our theme this week that many, many, many of the Psalms engage in this category of disorientation. Many of these Psalms, in fact, as many as say like two-thirds of them, a hundred out of 150 of them, engage in this category we might call lament. How does Israel deal with disorientation in the Bible? Really two ways I'm suggesting here today. Lament and wisdom. You get wisdom elements in the Psalms too, by the way. But let's dwell on this category of lament for a moment. I mean, it's pretty simple in a way. What does Israel do when it's sad? When it experiences national destruction? What do you do when someone dies? You cry, <laughs> okay? You cry. And in the life of faith, you don't just cry to nobody or into the dirt. You cry out to God. You lament. Let's listen to some of this lament language. If you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Psalm 88. I'll start with Psalm 88. This is maybe the darkest psalm, okay? I'll read you. Maybe the darkest one um, of all. Um, here is this classic category of lament in the language of Israel's prayers of the psalms. Psalm 88. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all of your waves. You have taken from me my closest friends and have made me repulsive to them. I'm confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day. I spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? 
Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long, they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. There you have it. (laughs) I mean, how does that function as a prayer or a song? Darkness is my closest friend, the end, right? Not all of the Psalms end with some kind of turn back to praise even. I mean, this one just grounds out in literally the word darkness. Notice the language there too. I mean, is the psalmist saying, yes, Lord, I'm experiencing these problems, but you know, you're not really involved and this is all my fault and I hope things get better? No, actually, the psalmist is saying, is, is looking at God and addressing God in the second person. You have done this. You have taken from me my closest friends. You've made me repulsive. You did this. You did this. Verse 14, why, Lord, do you reject me? Why are you hiding your face from me? This theme of divine hiding is an important one in the Psalms. The psalmist cries out in pain and is in a state of deep disorientation and can only assume that if God knew about this, that God would do something. Or in the language of Psalm 44, another, another fantastic psalm on this front that I'm going to ask you to read for this week, the psalmist says, God, are you sleeping? Maybe you've been sleeping. I'm sure you're sleeping. I'm sure that's what this is about. Because if you were awake and you saw what I was going through, you would do something about it. So you must be asleep. Wake up, God. Wake up. I mean, does that language sound too bold for a person of faith to pray? I mean, it's, it's a fair question to ask, you know? Is that language available to you as a person of faith? I can only say this. On biblical terms, absolutely yes, it is. And it's all over the place. We looked at a little bit of this language from Jeremiah a couple weeks ago or last week as well, where Jeremiah cries out and calls God almost deceitful and like God has tricked him into being a prophet and has hurt him in various ways. The Psalms are full of this. So if we're to take scripture as any example for how we might lament, we might take this example. Scripture presents lament and the cry, the cry out in the moment of disorientation in very dark and very stark and direct terms. Israel addresses God completely honestly completely honestly in the face of pain. Now you might look at this person who's speaking the psalm and be like, okay, are you really so innocent as you act? You know, maybe, maybe not, you know. (laughs) Maybe you could find that person and psychoanalyze their life. You know, we do this to each other sometimes. Our friend is having a hard time and we're kind of like, yeah, you know, I understand, life sucks, but really, you know, I don't know, I told you not to start dating him, you know, why did you do, and we start, you know, you can get into like the blaming thing really fast, you know. But these psalms are kind of like a lot of these. They don't really get into that. They're just like, God, how dare you? How, how could you do this to me? How could you take away my friends? How could you ruin me with sickness? Sickness is an important theme in the psalms that you're going to see as well. Even a psalm like the famous Psalm 23 acknowledges this darkness in many ways. Psalm 23 is so famous. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. It's a kind of shepherding imagery. But there's darkness in that psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are still with me. 
So there's an acknowledgement that God is with the speaker, yes, in that psalm that you'll read for this week, but also an acknowledgement that the speaker walks through a valley which is in the shadow of death, darkest death, deepest darkness. You prepare a table before me in the midst of my enemies, that psalm says. So yay, God is preparing a table, but wait, I'm eating with my enemies. What is happening here, okay? So the psalms will often, even in moments of comfort and joy and peace, will often have this acknowledgement alongside of it that one is traveling through darkness. So much to read and talk about in the Psalms. I'm excited for you to read some of these for this week. I've included a heavy dose of the Lament Psalms so you can get used to that language and hear it, but also some other ones too. What about this book, Lamentations? The book of Lamentations is so fascinating. I mean, it's a really simple book. It's not very long. It's a series of, as the title suggests, laments or lamentations or cries of pain in response to the destruction of the temple. It comes on the heels of the book of Jeremiah. It's traditionally authored by Jeremiah. Maybe Jeremiah wrote it. Maybe he didn't. And the author there is just like, why God? How could this have happened? What do you mean, how could this have happened? Isn't that the whole kind of like story we've been telling that this happened, this thing in 586 happened because Israel had sinned? Yes, there's that stream, but the lamenter in the book of Lamentations, as perhaps you'll see from the chapters I've selected for you, doesn't always see it that way. They'll even say, Lord, we have suffered, yes, but we've also suffered too much. It's gone too far. We're paying double for our sins. This in the language of Isaiah chapter 40, where the speaker there kind of gives voice to some of this concern as well. Okay, so you got a whole book of laments there. So this is one way. I've used these two books, Psalms and Lamentations. You could also add Jeremiah there too, because Jeremiah does a lot of this. How does Israel deal with disorientation? Lament. How else does Israel deal with death? the fracture, the burial, the suffering. Here's another category, the category of wisdom, wisdom. These three books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes are often grouped together as wisdom books within the Hebrew Bible, wisdom books. They offer different perspectives on what they call, and each of them in different ways, the fear of the Lord. The idea of fear is an important concept in the wisdom books. What kind of fear are we talking about? The fear that is a sort of respect? Yes, certainly that. What about the fear though that's just like, almost like terror in the face of something that's so big you can't understand it? Yes, that too, (laughs) okay? These books are so different from one another and if you read them all right in a row and I'm gonna give you nice generous portions to read for this week, you might be tempted to ask, okay, what is the wisdom here I'm supposed to take away about suffering exactly? Well, you gotta get into each of the books and see what they have to offer. Proverbs, for example. Proverbs offers what we might call traditional, basic human wisdom. Traditional wisdom. Basically, Proverbs presents a moral world like this. You get what you pay for, okay? You kind of get, you, you get out what you put in. Classic advice. If you dig a pit, the Proverbs says in one famous verse, for someone else to fall into it, you're going to fall into it, right? It's kind of like a moral math. For those of you who like math and engineering, you're kinda, you don't like all this interpretive stuff and getting all off into the weird abstract world. I get it, no ambiguity, fine, fair enough. Proverbs is a book you will like, okay? Proverbs is a book that offers a kind of simple, direct moral math for what happens to people on this earth. Do not do these things and you will not have bad things happen to you. Now, the way that Proverbs engages with this at points, to me at least as a person of faith, seems really winning. I mean, I look at my own life and there's so many places that I can just, when I see my own problems, my own suffering, my own disorientation, I am to blame. 
Let's say, I'm going, let's say I go through a season where my faith seems to be struggling. I have to turn to myself and ask, like, am I going to church? Am I praying? Am I reaching out through scripture, through prayer? Is that, is that like a spiritual practice I'm actually doing? And if I'm not, like, do I have a right to be like, oh God, I don't know what's wrong. I just feel so distant from you. I don't go to church or pray or do anything to make that better. I just wish it was magically better. Like, that's not, you know, this is a place where maybe the kind of Proverbs mentality can help you. You know, kind of slaps you on the face. Wake up, take responsibility for yourself and your world. And I think as you read Proverbs, you're gonna see a lot of this. The metaphors are, are fascinating too. I mean, it's kind of directed at a young man as the young man struggles with sexual temptation. The loose woman and tries to entice the man on the one side, but then you have another woman, namely someone called Lady Wisdom or Hokmah in Hebrew, who's going to entice the man in another sense. It's a world of desire that Proverbs presents. We desire things, we're human desirers. It's kind of like Genesis chapter three, really Genesis chapters one through three where humans live and work and are in a world of beauty and desire and want things. Remember way back to our first week, what is a human being? What is an I, I believe? We are wanters, <laughs> we are desirers. And the book of Proverbs recognizes that aspect of, of ourselves over and over again, asking us to desire the right things. Now, that's on the one hand, okay? On the other hand, you might read some of this stuff and you might think, really? Does the world really work like that? Like, let me read you some selected verses in Proverbs. I'm not cherry picking these. These are everywhere in Proverbs and it is the dominating, demanding morality of Proverbs. Verses like this. Proverbs 10.3. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but thwarts the craving of the wicked. Or how about this, verse nine. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. The righteous will never be uprooted, but the wicked will not remain in the land. The house of the righteous contains great treasure, but the income of the wicked brings ruin. Righteousness guards the person of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. Or maybe summed up best in this statement, no harm overtakes the righteous, but the wicked have their fill of trouble. Proverbs 12, 21. Is that true? That if you're righteous, no harm overtakes you? Um, what, about, what about that verse about, about the Lord thwarts, the, you know, that the right, I've never seen the righteous go hungry? I mean, there's a kind of math you can do here, which is like, what if you see someone going hungry or what if you see someone who's poor? You just do the math. They're not righteous. I mean, how far could you take this? Could you find children in America, all over the world who are starving, their stomachs distended and bloated from disease, flies buzzing around their eyes and be like, I'm sorry, what did you do? You wicked little kid, you know, like, do you apply it there? I mean, apparently this kind of wisdom would also call for the kind of wisdom to know when to apply it, but Proverbs doesn't really say when to apply it. These statements are totalizing. So how would you know? So that's a little disconcerting. I mean, that's something like as a person of faith, you're gonna have to think about. This, this worldview that Proverbs offers of a straightforward moral math. Is it really always like that? Okay, but it sometimes is. The book of Job. Oh man, this book is a bombshell, I tell you. A bombshell. A man whom we're told in the beginning of the book is totally righteous. He is the exact instantiation of Proverbs' righteous man. Is just living his life, praying for his kids, doing his thing, 
when a series of horrible events befall him. And you're going to be shocked, maybe if you haven't read this book, about why the horrible events come his way. Oh, just wait for it. It's strange. We maybe will have a chance to talk about this on Friday in the panel. And he suffers like no one has ever suffered. His whole family gets killed, including ten, his 10 kids. His body goes into a state of total ruin and his friends come to comfort him and to sit with him during this time of total grieving and loss. And they strike up an argument, this group of four, Job and three friends. Why is Job suffering? I mean, if you saw somebody suffer the way Job had, and if you had the book of Proverbs deep in your soul, which as a good person of faith, perhaps you should, you're going to come to one conclusion, friends. What did you do? What happened? And Job is going to be like, nothing happened. What happened was God happened. God is unrighteous. God just punishes indiscriminately, has no bearing on what we do. You do a good thing. You know, this kind of like transactional mentality with God is so fascinating, isn't it? I can't claim that I've never prayed prayers like this. I know you all have. Don't deny it. You sit before an exam or something and you're like, oh God, I didn't study. I don't know what I'm doing, but if you just help me this one time, I'll be better, right? That classic bargaining is, is just a, a good old human psychological characteristic, you know? It's even made its way into the grief process. If you just, oh God, just, I know, just help me this one time and I'll do this thing later, if you just please, you know? Does the world work like that though? Do you really get the kind of cookie for doing the right thing and the kind of slap in the face for doing the wrong thing? Job says, no, 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 no. God just, God just ruins everybody. He even kills kids. God's willing to kill kids to prove some kind of sick, weird point. The world is corrupt. There is no justice. And the friends are like, Job, what are you talking about? Do not say that about God. Do not talk about God like that. They're defending God. They're saying, no, 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 Job, read the book of Proverbs. You do things and things come back on you. This is the way it is. Read the book of Deuteronomy, Job. Blessings and curses. Hello. Read the book of Proverbs. Job says, I read it and it's wrong and I don't care. I'm mad. I'm sad. This goes on and on for like 30 chapters. I'm not going to ask you to read the whole 30 chapters, but if you get caught up in it, just don't stop. Just read it, okay? And then when no one expects it to happen, God actually shows up in the argument and then overwhelms the group with a series of bizarre nature metaphors meant to terrify and overwhelm everyone and basically says to them, shut your stupid little whiny faces. I'm God and you're not. The world is brutal. Animal babies die out in the wilderness. What are you going to do about it? Nothing. That's what I thought. Nothing. What have you got to say? Nothing? Good. Shut up. Read, you'll read the speech. You'll see I'm not being unfair in my summary. This is what God says to them. And Job says, after hearing this divine display of utter power and no answers to his problems whatsoever, Job says, okay, you're right. Fine. I lose. God says, you're right. You lost. But your friends who were, who were talking the whole time, God says, they were wrong. They were defending me badly. Get rid of them. But you, Job, you spoke what is right of me. Wait a minute. What had Job been saying the whole time? That the world is it, totally immoral? That all, that all consequence and action are unhitched from one another? And God affirms Job, but the friends who had been defending God with the proverbial worldview, God says, eh, you have to repent at the end of the book. And they do. Job repents for them in a sense, a model of vicarious suffering and of one repenting for another. It's a kind of Jesus-like model. Dr. Garcia brought that up in one of the panels. Job as a model of Jesus in this sense. And in the end, Job gets his stuff back. The end. (laughs) 
What does that have to say about suffering? And how do you square that with the book of Proverbs then about this key question? How is Israel to behave? Okay, but if you think of Israel dealing with its problems in this sense through lament but also wisdom, you see how the book of Job could be a very fertile ground for thinking. It's a very heady book. It's a tough philosophical book, you could say. Israel engages in something like philosophy in the book of Job, okay? Wisdom is a way to deal with disorientation. You gotta get more wise. Not necessarily smarter, like knowing more facts, but wiser about experience, about how things really could be in this world. Maybe not like you expect. Finally, the book of Ecclesiastes. Oh, I'm so excited for you to read parts of this book. So strange. The author there says, in in distinction to Job and Proverbs, says, you know what? I've thought a lot, really hard, about the way the world is. And I've thought about the righteous and the wicked and what they do and how it works. And I've got a conclusion and I've got to tell you this conclusion. Life is meaningless. Everything is totally meaningless. There's no place for any kind of moral conclusion. You win some, you lose some. Righteous people get killed in the prime of their life. Wicked people just go on living, getting all the riches and glory and fame that they want. And it means nothing. But there is a solution, he says. You can just eat food and drink, be happy in your marriage or whatever you got. And that's what you can basically do because God is there and God is a judge. God's kind of remote in this worldview, okay? God's not really there answering your prayers every day. In fact, this author of Ecclesiastes says, God is in heaven. You are on earth. Let your words be few, okay? Shut your mouth. Don't go praying about every little headache and problem you have because you don't know what's going on. God will judge you. Try to enjoy your youth, but God's gonna judge you, but enjoy it. But God's judging you, but enjoy it because this is all we have. C.S. Lewis, um, an author probably many of you uh, have read if you've been into reading Christian literature, a famous 20th century Christian author, has this to say in his book, Reflections on the Psalms about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, yeah, when we read the Old Testament, we see distortions. We see a movement to God that is not complete for Christians that will only become complete later on in the creed in the New Testament when Jesus rises again. And he affirms that about the Old Testament, but here's what C.S. Lewis says about Ecclesiastes, this book I'm gonna ask you to read part of, who says life is meaningless. He says, nor would I now willingly spare from my Bible something in itself so anti-religious as the nihilism of Ecclesiastes. Nihilism means like no belief, everything is meaningless. We get there in Ecclesiastes, a cold, clear picture of man's life without God. That statement is itself part of God's word. We need to have heard it. Even to have assimilated Ecclesiastes, C.S. Lewis says, and and no other book in the Bible would be to have advanced further toward truth than some people do. This voice too, this bizarre, anti-religious, in a way, voice of Ecclesiastes is part of scripture for Christians. Job and its bizarre wranglings, as you'll see, is part of scripture. Proverbs with its very traditional spirituality is part of scripture. And so is, and so is the multi-faceted experience of Psalms and so is the deep, deep pain of lamentations. These two are resources of faith. Will you go through disorientation? Yes. Is there something on the other side in the Christian journey? Yes. Because we can change these words too. Orientation, disorientation, new orientation. On Christian terms, more Christian terms would be life, death, resurrection, right? Israel experiences death, and death is part of the life of faith. And these books, I think, that we're going to read for this week are going to take us deep into that mystery, so I hope you enjoy them.